The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Tonight is our monthly evening Dharma program where we invite or often invite a guest teacher. Many of you know Santi Carl. He's um, led several of the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective retreats over the last several years. And he and his partner, um, Joe Marie. Joe Marie. <laughs> I was going to say Mary Joe again. Joe Marie have recently moved from the Chicago area to southwest Wisconsin where they have a uh, 70 acres of land, and they're, this is taken from the website, building a Dharma refuge, Dharma refuge for practicing with and close to nature, living sustainably, and helping the Hill Society. So Santa Carl often travels around, uh, leading retreats and doing other programs at the different Dharma centers around the states, also practices and teaches in Thailand, and uh, also does a lot of translating. Uh, mostly from his teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, a well-known Thai master, died in, was it 93? Yeah. Uh, 93. And uh, so kind of combining teaching and translating, we're hoping to have him continue to come up at least once a year to teach here at the center, possibly to lead retreats with TCBC in the future, too. So welcome, Santi Carl. He led a day-long retreat yesterday, and a number of people here were fortunate to be part of that on mindfulness of breathing. And tonight, Sati Carl is going to talk on the interplay of suffering and happiness and uh, bringing in the teachings of dependent origination from the Buddha. Thanks. Welcome. So, good evening. Yesterday, it's, it's gone. Um, yesterday I expressed my envy for the developments here and also that um, this community is thriving this way. Rethinking, I think, admiration is a somewhat better term, so I'll, <laughs> I'll express my admiration tonight. Um, the uh, Getting the new property and doing it relatively um, nonviolently is a big, I mean, sounds like the conflicts weren't too heavy, and that's, in my mind, a huge accomplishment to get through that whole process without bloodshed. And so, because uh, I've, often you hear of those things kind of leading to split off groups and lots of frustrations and bitterness, and so I, I think that says a lot for uh, the grounding in practice that happens here. And I wish lots of success and fruition in that project and what it, what it does to a community or the, the whole area. And as somebody who's, um, like Mark, returned to the Midwest and dragged a partner from one of the coasts, although it was a different coast than when, um, or she dragged me or something. But uh, it feels really nice to see these things happening here. 
and I'm happy to be part of that as well. So I thought I'd express my admiration, and then which kind of ties into the topic of the interplay of suffering and happiness, because as human beings we have a strange talent for turning happiness into suffering. And I'd like to look at that in a few different ways, including bringing in some of the perspectives of dependent co-origination. I think when we came up with this topic, and I'm not sure whose idea it was, or it might have been a, it might have been a dependent co-origination of, <laughs> of bouncing things back and forth. But um, I think that what was going through my mind with this is how, in samsara, especially the internal samsara. Happiness and suffering get connected in ways that we take uh, a lifetime or more uh, to untangle. And so I'd like to to look into that. How often our attitudes towards or our relationships with happiness end up being a co-arising with, with suffering, which is kind of tragic. We'd like to be happy, but sometimes or too often we end up with this extra stuff that we call suffering. So I'd like to uh, offer some perspectives on that. For a start, like to recall the two Pali words that are being translated as happiness and suffering. Sukha is happiness and dukkha is is what often gets translated suffering. In a traditional etymology, sukha means easy to bear and dukkha is difficult to bear. And I, I often find that a useful way to to think of these. Even happiness is something we we bear in the Buddhist understanding. In the usual duality, happiness is good, suffering is bad. But in Buddhist teaching, uh, it's not so simple. And so to think of Suffering is that which is heavy and difficult to bear when when we've seen it. Another etymology from, I think, the commentaries has it that dukkha also means when you've seen it, you see its hatefulness or ugliness. It's a kind of early language that maybe we're not, it's not so PC in our culture. But... Um, then happiness is something we would like to be beautiful, wonderful, and all that. But I think the point of this traditional etymology that even happiness is something that is born. It's easier. It's lighter. 
than suffering. But yet, it's something we we bear, at least as long as we're in samsara, or as long as samsara is spinning within us. So I'd kind of like to play around with these a little bit. When I was thinking about this yesterday, uh, somehow the image of Siamese twins came to mind. I'm not sure that quite works with happiness and suffering, but I was kind of thinking of a, a molecule or any binary system where two things are somehow bonded together. And you know, again, there's a way of thinking that wants to make happiness and suffering opposites. But there are other perspectives like the, you know, the yin-yang sign of Taoism, if I understand it correctly, that these are two things that are kind of interpenetrating and alternating. So I had this image of Siamese twins linked in some way that's uh, difficult to separate. Or if you like, it's maybe a oxygen molecule. Maybe that's too healthy sounding, but some strange chemical bond where suffering and happiness are, are connected. And that that bond can be quite quite strong, even if it at times is invisible to us. For me, the bond is most easily understood as clinging, and especially clinging to things as me and mine, which is the core meaning of clinging or grasping or attachment in in early Buddhism. So I wanted to reflect on this. How, how do we create or recreate and maintain the bond that often is happening? Although it's impermanent, right? But somehow it's a, it's a very sticky kind of connection in our lives. So I wanted to look into this, how we, how we create, recreate, and perpetuate this bond between happiness and suffering. And I want to center that on clinging to me and mine. And we'll look at, we'll bring in some of the dependent co-origination teachings around that. So I was I'm thinking um, some of the ways we relate to happiness might be a good way to reflect on this. And so I listed a few. I'd like to start with how we seek happiness. It's a very common thing. Teachers like the Dalai Lama consider it just part of being human or part of being alive that we naturally or instinctually seek happiness. Animals may do it somewhat differently. As humans, we do it in 
rather complicated and I would say bizarre ways at times. So perhaps as I'm talking, maybe in the back of your mind or in the forefront if you want, ponder a little bit or uh, think of some of the ways you seek happiness or the forms of happiness that we we seek in our lives. Um, since Mark mentioned the Liberation Park and our project in southwest Wisconsin, um, part of that, if I'm honest, is seeking happiness for myself, for Joe Marie, our friends, uh, students and other people we're connected with. We'd like it to be a very healthy way of seeking happiness. We hope to do it in a way that doesn't harm and doesn't cause trouble, although we're already involved in one of the local controversies, which is a wind energy project. I'm not going to get into that, hopefully. But, um, but it's hard. You know, you, you want to do something, and it's complicated often in, in this world, or at least uh, with some of our minds. So we have something we aspire to, maybe something good and wholesome, and we'd like it to be dhammically relevant and socially beneficial. And we find this quite beautiful little valley that's for sale, and we acquire it, and it's the mortgage is something that we can handle, and slowly we'll we'll build meditation cabins and things like that there. And walking around is beautiful. It's fun. Um, it's kind of fun to think of all the little places to put cabins and benches and things we could do. Though if we're not careful, there'll be a cabin everywhere and it won't be so beautiful anymore. But uh, hopefully, I think it'll be pretty easy to avoid that. So all this is happy, uh, at least for me. There are the times it's a little overwhelming or scary. Uh, it's my first uh, time I've co-signed for a bank loan in my life. Uh, but it's not too bad. But it's it's mainly happiness. But then, as we start aiming for things, then how how does this or when? And I I don't take this to be inevitable. But when does the the happiness of it, the happiness of being in a beautiful place uh, with nature, learning uh, the different native species that are now flowering in the woods, or talking with friends about how we can do things, um, ener alternative energy sources, alternative building, and so on and so on and so on. In the traditional teachings on dependent co-origination, the 
pleasantness of being in a quiet, although there's a little, you know, highway noise in the distance, with lots of birds, hawks floating around in the sky. Um, the pleasantness of that, it's, um, which could be called happiness. And I, I want to play also with some of the different ways we use the word happiness. So one aspect is there are things we experience as pleasant, pleasurable, agreeable, which in Pali Buddhism is called pleasant feeling or sukha, vedana, happy feeling. So we're, you know, we experience, and hopefully you've got plenty of your your situations where you experience happiness, like maybe at the the rummage sale, or is it a rummage sale here? Or um, you sold something and a lot of money came into the building fund, you know, and that's a a happiness too. So there's this these ways that pleasure occurs. But then how does our mind mind deal with that? In the dependent co-origination teachings, something pleasant occurs or something unpleasant. But our theme is more about pleasantness and happiness right now. And according to this teaching, craving can arise based on pleasant feelings. So if I go back to the example of our project, and I don't want to look at this so crude as we see this beautiful place and we want to buy it, although that kind of happened. Um, but more on the moment to mo or the more day-to-day -day stuff where we're out there walking around in the woods and we see a nice spot, oh, this would be a great place to put a, a cabin for people to come and meditate or we'd like to make a little bench here, nice tree, somebody could sit, enjoy the scene, reflect, practice, read, whatever. But at some point, the, pleasant, the mind starts to, I think of it as a kind of fixing. The mind starts to kind of glom together around that pleasantness in a sort of fixated way. That's one way I understand craving. And so craving isn't simply wanting, but it's a narrowing of focus. It's, it's a tightening of mind, it seems to me. And then usually when that happens, there's also a kind of, according to the teaching, when there's craving, then arises clinging. So when the mind focuses in a certain way where there's something that's wanted, then the way I understand clinging, the sense of self becomes thick or thicker 
or perhaps that's when it first arises, different people debate that. But when we fixate on something, then the sense of me experiencing comes in. So like back to imagining or, or dreaming or whatever of how we'll, how we'll build things. And so now there's not only a, a kind of hope or idea that this would be a great spot for the meditation hall, for example. But now there's the sense of me being the agent to make it happen. And according to the teaching, then, when with clinging as the condition, becoming occurs. There is becoming. I understand this as identification, uh, the modern term that fits here best in the way I experience this. So now there's not only me, the agent, that's feeling, you know, I'm going to make this happen somehow. Although for it to happen, a lot of people will be involved. But, you know, the others kind of fade a little bit to the margins and the me doing it gets uh, more prominent. And then the, my identities come up. Me, the teacher, or me, the carpenter, or the... Uh, Architect. I'm not an architect, but, you know, we can pretend. And me, the fundraiser, which I don't like, so that's a, not the most pleasant identity. Or me, the organizer, which I'm not good at. And so, but these different hats or roles kind of come up, but now they're around me. And some of those are pleasant, so... Actually, I want to backtrack. Sometimes craving feels good. There's an energy in that. So sometimes that might be a kind of happiness. Or it might be experienced as happy. And then now I have a role, you know, my life has meaning or I'm important. That can be a kind of happiness. Although somewhere, especially in some of the identities that come up, it's, it starts to be not so happy, like me, the fundraiser, or me with, who's responsible for a, a mortgage. And, um, you know, I don't have a job, <laughs> which is the way I want it. But um, so there's, and then the me who has hope and faith and trust which is back to happy and it just kind of these things come in and then sometimes there's anxiousness sometimes there's excitement maybe sometimes there's a little greediness or um, the wind turbine project at one point looked very threatening to this project and it, it could be we don't really know yet so fear um, these kind of emotional 
things are what I think the Buddha meant by birth, where the sense of self ripens into what we might call ego birth. By the way, this is the way my teacher understood rebirth, is the rebirth that matters isn't what happens in your so-called next lifetime, but the rebirth that matters is how ego gets reborn over and over again each day. Angry ego, frightened ego, greedy ego, proud ego, um, despairing ego, all the forms of reactive emotion. <coughs> and then there's, there's suffering. So that's one angle on this topic that occurs to me how even as we go about wholesome things like um, developing Dharma centers and the natural joy, especially when you know people come together, we work together doing something healthy and creative, and yet there's this ability of our minds to get sticky around it. And at first it can still be kind of happy, but somewhere it's not just the natural joy, it's a little gooey when there's craving involved. And maybe at first it's kind of low-level craving. But if it gets more intense and it engenders the sense of me, me the agent, me who's responsible, me with expectations, which is another way I think clinging plays out. Later the expectation becomes demands and and then resentment or uh, blaming and things like that. So somewhere we take what's just maybe the natural pleasantness and joy about doing wholesome things and being with good people and then we complicate it with craving, a sense of self. We, we build our identities around this. And then ego gets reborn into some form. And we've now, we've now turned at least part of the experience into suffering. I'd like to, uh, I won't go into all the detail with a few other examples, but um, one way relate, we relate to happiness is we seek it. Um, another way that we relate to happiness is we enjoy it. The, uh, back when I was leading retreats in Thailand, this was always a big question for people who are often having their first real experience with Buddhist teachings and with meditation. Um, I and the other teachers would be talking about not clinging to happiness and pain and things like that. 
and a big question that kept coming up, but can't we enjoy, can't we enjoy things? And of course, what does each of us mean if we ask that question? What, what does enjoyment mean? Uh, I've, I've made various guesses over the years. But again, this can be a reflection we each make into our own, own experience. When something makes us happy, how do we go about enjoying it? And I'm not trying to, you know, turn enjoyment into a bad word, but I, I don't want to assume it's a good thing. Um, it's those assumptions that confuse us over and over again. So how do we, each of us, enjoy, enjoy happiness? Again, if we go back to the dependent origination perspective, is it a kind of enjoyment that's just kind of simple and natural? It's allowed to arise. We don't fight the joy. We don't repress it or clamp down on it or feel guilty because we're happy and somebody else isn't. So is it something that's just allowed to come and go as a kind of natural process? Or does enjoyment mean, sometimes it looks to me like enjoyment means we kind of rev it up. You know, instead of just being, being cool with the natural joy of something, we, we, we want to make it a little more intense. So we, is there a craving in there? Is there a sense of self? And this, this leads into the, the next thing I wanted to bring in here. Is there a sense of ownership, which I think is the third way we relate to happiness. We're possessive of it. And that's something the Buddha used in his teachings. He didn't call it clinging so much, but in some of the teachings about how violence occurs, it's violence has to do with the sense of ownership and possession, which leads to guarding. If we own something, then we want to protect it. So are, are these are these um, things I'm trying to describe or point at familiar to us? Where what seems at first and may may be at first innocent enjoyment, just you know, when kids are playing, having fun, it seems we should all um, be nice if we all had that capacity. But then if the sense of possession, and then you can really notice the ego when we start to put a boundary around something with our sense of ownership, and we find ourselves defending something. It could be an idea. As when I look back, when I was first getting involved in Buddhism and really liking the ideas, and I, I still like them, but 
you know, deriving happiness from these teachings, intellectual happiness, sort of. And then if somebody disagreed, a need to defend uh, the ideas that gave me happiness. It's per, it's probably more complex because I have a strong streak of wanting to be right, which is another way I I'm, I try to keep myself happy by feeling I'm right. Um, my ego is has uh, gets stuck there more often than it gets stuck in other places. Your ego may get stuck in uh, different places. But then wherever it, it's getting stuck, we find ourselves guarding the perimeter, you know, kind of like the uh, Im immigration walls that as a society or as some of us in our society want to put up. Or even where I live, um, our little town is one-third Mexican. And, you know, and different people, some people don't seem to want any barrier, and there's others we've bumped into who want big walls between them, them and us. So how did it get that way? where we, we try to guard our happiness. So seeking, uh, enjoying, owning, possessing, guarding, defending, and then losing. Another way we relate to happiness is where we feel it drifting, drifting away. Like for us, moving Moving to Wisconsin has been great in a number of ways, but certain friendships that were based in proximity have uh, weakened, partly because they weren't real old friendships, but even some old friendships, you know, and the happiness based in that can, can fade or slip. So we all have experiences of that where something that made us happy changed. And we, we lose happiness. But yet, because we have memories, we still are, have a, some relationship with that happiness in our, in our memory. And again, you know, that may start to become unpleasant that something that made us happy has changed. And where does that shift from being just a natural, a natural process that, like everything else, happiness comes and goes, it's impermanent? And where do we, we try to hold on or create all the identities we create about lost happiness. Uh, some of us feel guilt about missed opportunities or the mistakes we made or a sense of victimhood or feeling abandoned 
you know, somebody dumped us or treated us bad. And so again, we create an identity and then around that identity, an emotional reaction takes place, which is where I think the, the suffering fully manifests. Not necessarily just because we, we lost a certain ephemeral form of happiness. The, the last way of relating to happiness that occurs to me tonight is through remembering we can, we can relate to old happiness with longing, longing after. And this is, again, something the Buddha talked about, how things that have given us happiness, we, we long after them. You know, and so there can be a kind of bittersweet experience where kind of makes us, I don't know for you, for me, bittersweet kind of, it's kind of warm and a little cozy, but it's sad. Is that suffering? Or is it only suffering when we, we grasp and get stuck? in that and create an identity around it and get trapped in it. To me it's it's not always obvious or easy to sort out the difference. Um, the teaching of dependent co-origination is something I, I'm really into. I think it's really great. So I have a lot of fun you know, trying to figure out the subtleties of it. But as Ajahn Chah once pointed out to some scholar monks from Bangkok that when you fall out of a tree, you don't necessarily notice every branch, but it hurts when you hit the ground. Um, so theoretically, I can tease out the, the subtleties of how it goes from just an, a pleasant experience through these through craving, clinging, becoming, birth, suffering. But in real life, it's, it's not so simple. But I, I think it's, it's something we, we both practice with in the sense that if we have a solid mindfulness practice, we notice these things. We may not see boom, 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 boom. But we start to notice how happiness shifts into something a little more sticky and grasping. And it's, I think we're all familiar with things like how we, we get possessive about happiness or the things that make us happy. And at times we're reactive, we guard and we even fight to protect. And then we lose and we we long.
Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, gave a talk once, which he didn't title, so when I translated it and we published it, I translated it as happiness and hunger because his theme is there are two kinds of happiness. There's the happiness that's connected with hunger, and then there's the happiness without hunger. Hunger is the literal translation of the Pali word tanha that I'm translating as craving. Um, it literally means hunger or thirst. So, um, by the way, that's on the Suen Mok website if, if you want to read it. I'm not going to repeat what it says. But since I started with this image of happiness and suffering that are bonded together by clinging, or if you like, craving, clinging, identity, and egoism. And if the other essential piece of dependent origination is ignorance, um, craving, clinging, becoming, ego birth, all arise through a lack of understanding. We, we see and understand experience in ways that encourage clinging and ego. So I'd like to um, finish with a few thoughts, kind of more questions, about happiness that's not bonded with with suffering. So instead of these kind of two uh, sort of a bipolar uh, binary monocle that's molecule that's the two parts are stuck together. What's the happiness like that's not bonded or connected with suffering? So I wanted to uh, go back to some of the ways we relate to to happiness, and uh, I hope this doesn't sound flippant or like I'm just playing with words, but I want to suggest a few possibilities. Can we change some of these relationships with happiness? From example, for example. Rather than seeking happiness, can we increasingly um, learn to just let it happen? That probably sounds really simple, <laughs> maybe simplistic, but um, it seems to me that's how it actually works. That. Every time I seek happiness, it gets messy. But when I'm, and I don't claim to, you know, have really let go of seeking and craving, but at least the more that that's relaxed and learning to allow happiness, then. It, it seems to happen a lot more freely 
and there's still pain and difficulty and hassles, but less resistance on, on both sides. And I, I wonder, though, if um, we have the courage for that or if, if we have faith in that. Because I think part of the American way is we're indoctrinated with uh, beliefs where we have to make it happen. We have to fight. Often nowadays we have a lot of language of we have to fight. You need to be ambitious and that sort of thing. Or, or we could kind of go into a sort of uh, passive la-la, just um, wait for happiness to happen, which isn't what I'm talking about. For me, it seems that practice is learning how to be fully engaged with whatever life is giving us. And part of that is to let happiness happen. So how do we kind of learn no seeking? And then following from that, uh, can we make a practice of non-enjoyment? And I don't mean sort of uh, puritanical sternness that refuses to smile or enjoy things. So I, I don't really know what to call it, but I'm, so I'm just tossing out um, non-enjoyment. To find something in the middle between a kind of um, sticky, grasping way of enjoying things and to find a way of enjoying, if you like, where uh, there's nobody enjoying it. One of the things I, I like about Buddhism is we it helps us think in verbs rather than in nouns. So, example, enjoying is it's just a natural act, can be, I think, a natural activity. But when we turn it into a noun to get, or the, the noun me, or the pronoun me, or whatever, our identities tend to be nouns rather than verbs. No owning. I, is that threatening? Now, this one's been tricky for me. I was talked a bit about this with Mark earlier today, partly because of my years as a monk, but also some of my ideas about money. Um, I enjoyed as a monk not having to deal much with money. And uh, when I was a little kid, that part in the Bible of it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than a rich man into heaven, even as a kid, that sounded like that's the truth. 
And so I always kind of assumed being rich was immoral. And I still believe it. It often is. Not always. Well, but there seem to be moral and in... Anyway, I'm not... That's not my point. <laughs> Fortunately, I distracted myself enough to forget my point. <laughs> but there's, there's a way where not owning can become another stance. That's what I kind of wanted to tease out where, you know, you can be kind of holy because you don't deal with money. You let other people deal with money. So how do we deal responsibly with with money? Uh, especially, I think, when we do things on a dana basis. How, how do we... Um, money or other gifts that come as as genuine generosity and it's part of people's practice uh, to me that's something kind of sacred so how do we how do we work with that or whatever our whatever wealth whatever possessions life has given us how do we deal with these responsibly yet not own them? There's another biblical passage. It's, I think, in 1 Corinthians. I've looked it up many times, but I, I never can remember the exact location. But there's the part about um, having, it's still patriarchal, so it's having a wife, not having a husband, but having a wife as if one didn't going to the market and coming back as if you didn't buy anything. I mean, you bought stuff, but it's as if you didn't internally. That was uh, one of Vajan Buddhadasa's fav favorite biblical passages. He thought it was the, the best example of non-clinging in, in the Bible. So how do we own a home, a car, Close. How does the Board of Common Ground or the Board of Liberation Park own land, buildings? And yet, the sense of ownership is uh, at least pretty transparent, not, not too thick and heavy. And that and then not losing the uh, seems to me if, if we don't cling so much when happiness is coming or when it's arrived then maybe we won't cling so much as it's as it's passing on and then I guess there wouldn't be much longing either So those are some thoughts. I'll like to um, end with one last little etymological thing. In in the Thai language, 
the word for happiness is borrowed from Pali in Sanskrit, so it's sukha. Although they they pronounce they shorten it to suk. But with a different spelling in Thai, and this is a non-Pali word, suk also means cooked. And so my teacher liked that Thais like to pun, and that was one of a pun he would use. Are you happy or are you cooked? <laughs> so um, next time you're happy, you might want to <laughs> ask that question. So kind of the, the happiness that's cool and the, the happiness that's cooked. So I'll, I'll stop and a um, little time for discussion. Mm-hmm. Feel free to uh, add to or enrich whatever I was saying. Just one more. I didn't follow what you were saying, which was in the question about the point market. Yeah, um, I wish I remembered it better. It's, I'll paraphrase to the best of my, does anybody know the Bible well? Any biblical scholars here? Huh? Okay. I was just checking in case. Um, It's something like, if have a wife or a husband as if you didn't. When going to the market, return home as if you didn't purchase anything. Those are the two parts I, I remember. Um, whatever wealth you may have, it's... Um, I'm screwing up the grammar, but something like uh, have it as if you didn't. Does that help? <laughs> And well, the point I think what it's getting at is your hands may be carrying home your groceries, but internally there's not there's not um, thoughts and emotions and an image of me with this stuff. Now maybe taking home the groceries is no big deal, but you buy a new some new clothes or something and you're taking them home but the sense of me who now owns these clothes the sense of me that owns this new car or new computer or whatever so physically we have these things or physically emotionally we're in relationship with someone (coughs) but we don't we don't create um, ownership. Um, so if I buy Look into. Though, 
if your self-esteem needs the dress, that might be a, a good clue. That something's going on more than just enjoying that this is um, a suitable, life-protecting garment. <laughs> Maybe that's a little too monastic. <laughs> trying to look at it in terms of good or bad, but just what's going on internally around the dress. And is it happiness or is it a little bit cooked? And, you know, that's for whoever's wearing the dress or is admiring it in the closet or whatever to, to find out. Do you want to come forward so people in the back can hear? Okay. I don't want to be too obvious, but I... I <laughs> it's too late. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, just um, some thoughts that came to my mind in response to some of the things you said. One was about how do you, you know, have the building or whatever, the center. I mean... This, the word comes from the Christian background, but I think it's appropriate is the whole idea of stewardship. You know, that whatever we have, we're taking care of it for a period of time and, and you know, hopefully caring for the land or caring for the building or whatever, and it won't be ours forever. We won't be here to have it forever. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, um, also kind of, even to take lightly what we, this is changing to the other topic I wanted to talk about, but um, like with the dress or something, I didn't even hear fully what she said, but I'm thinking of the thing of, um, we play roles like all the world's a stage and we're merely players for a brief time. You know, you could even say, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a woman and I'm delighting in having a beautiful dress and this is, great, you know, but, you know, it's very brief. It's like a, you know, a spark of a candle or whatever. And, you know, if you don't think I'm, I'm here forever being and doing this and this, me and it makes me great, it, it might be sort of like, you know, I have my partner and I adore my partner and we're very happy, but, you know, I also know everything is tragic. So those were just a couple thoughts that came in yeah, in, in line with the first one, in Thailand, there's a tradition that all the monasteries belong to the Buddha. So I, I know many abbots and monks that remind themselves of that every day, that it's not their monastery, it's, it's the Buddha's. Although sometimes the government doesn't agree. <laughs> that's another thing. <laughs> Thanks, Jean. Any other comments? I just wanted 
Thank you. Lord. sometimes that I find helpful I, I uh, pose a question, what would it be like? Now, I don't know if this is a good thing or, or, or not, but what would it be like if I were not anxious about feeling the blank? Um, because I, I am anxious about it, and I, I was just wondering uh, if you have any, any thought, am I, am I just sort of teasing myself? It, it seems to sometimes break me out of being anxious. Ask, what, what would it be like if? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I think, partly what I was doing in this talk is posing that. Because I think part of taking practice seriously is to seriously consider our potential to live without anxiousness, without anger, without fear, without greed. We may not yet experience that or believe it 100%, but if we don't at least entertain that possibility somewhat seriously, then you know, I wonder, then we're we're not really, you know, I know not everyone here is a identified Buddhist, or I assume not everyone, but that's kind of, and I, if we really practice with the Buddha's teaching, that's a key guiding piece that we would really like to check out the possibility of living without without anxiousness and and learn and find uh, that in our own experience so we verify it personally so, so I, I think it's a good reminder also because there's so much in our upbringing in our conditioning not just here in the US but many societies that doesn't really believe that. Um, So unless we actively bring ourselves back to that possibility, it's very easy to slip into common sense, which is, you know, anger, stuff like that. It's normal, you know, just live with it. It was interesting to hear your comments and all your the thought processes of talking about craving and clinging and the rebirth and all that. But it, you also mentioned something else about being simplistic. There's a simplistic thing that seems to me is I don't know if I need all those steps. Not that I'm good at this, but that I, that I actually need those steps. And I look at happiness. I look at unhappiness or suffering in the same frame and all it seems to be important is that I say this is happiness happiness is happening and I don't attach to it that's the practice that I'm aspiring to this is suffering suffering is happening 
I'm not adverse to it. And it seems like that's all I need to know. I don't need to go through all those other steps or something. And I just mm -hmm. wonder <laughs> Yeah, if you can do it. Some of us, um, I, I think these teachings can be useful because the very simple terms you express uh, don't always stop us from falling into aversion or, or attachment. So part of my practice is to notice how I go from just happiness to some form of clinging or reacting. And this is a teaching I find useful and I use as a mindfulness practice to, to become more aware of not just the end product, but somewhat how, how a nice experience lead, ends up in some form of reactivity. And it seems to me that that helps me to also be aware when that reactivity is either less or, or absent. And whether that would be the same for you, I don't, I don't know. When you're asked to give a talk, you got to talk about something. <laughs> 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 Yeah, the, um, I mean, what I was craving and clinging are, have clear parallels with any addiction, so, including ideas, beliefs. The enjoyment for me, it made me think of, uh, I think Americans are really, like, love hyperbole. We love to over-enjoy things. So a good restaurant is the best restaurant you've ever been to in your entire life. <laughs> so it seems to me that's kind of what that hyper enjoyment mm -hmm. that would I'd say that's at least one of the ways that we it's like adding uh, MSG. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm interested in the turn that you were talking about between when we get happy and then suddenly we start to suffer because we're happy. Um, 
interesting because I just realized I was doing this this afternoon. I was being especially grateful for a friendship um, that's fairly new, and I realized that the friend is um, significantly older than I am. Well, gee, that's not going to last forever. <laughs> and I started becoming kind of almost grieving this friendship because. I've been very old. <laughs> um, it just happened three minutes ago and already. Right, exactly. Um, and I guess from what you were saying earlier, I guess my sense is, is when that turn happens, it's not just the turn from happiness to suffering, but that kind of happens when the ego kind of sneaks in the back door um, and starts asserting itself there. Is that I, answer, I mean, do you have another comment on what's, what's going on? Well, this kind of dependent co-origination map, I think, points at key pieces. Like, there was just an enjoyment of some meaningful human interaction, but then now it's me interacting with someone, and then that me feels it has something to lose. there's no me, there's... Nothing to lose, yeah. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> yes, I'm back and then... So, Carl, you started off the talk differentiating, um, to some extent, envy and admiration. So I wanted to ask about sympathetic joy as a practice. That's more of a self, selfless form of happiness, but it seems like it's a very difficult area. So, for example, uh, apart from gambling or contests, if there's just a, a simple thing like a door prize at an event, and there's a drawing and somebody wins, everybody else is happy for them. They want to clap, they want to grab the person. Hug them and oh, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and that seems like that's kind of a cooked emotion um, when you're being joyful for someone else, but you're kind of enjoying their joy. And it's just like with sympathetic joy, you almost don't maybe you shouldn't say anything. Otherwise, you're you're engaging in that relationship and, and maybe setting yourself up for wanting to win the next door prize. So, <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure that teaching was primarily about door prizes. But, uh, <laughs> sympathetic joys often considered the antidote for envy. So, to because ego birth tends to happen over and over again. Part of it is to get out of the more unhealthy ego birth of envy. Even if there's some sense of me, uh, mudita or sympathetic altruistic joy, it's a healthier state, even if there's some, some me in it. What was your point? <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to, um, 
I. Well, let's say the more the self gets into it, the more messy it can get. But a lot of these teachings, I think, are relevant if we're in a like the envy piece. If we're if we're caught up in something pretty unhealthy, and we can get into a healthier, there may still be, you know, oh, I'm so happy for you. It's better than envy, probably. But then, yeah, if we're kind of revving it up, partly to look good or um, partly to pat ourselves on the back, oh, look at me, I'm, I've got sympathetic joy now. <laughs> you know, that kind of, that kind of wastes the uh, wholesomeness of it. So, so you learn and you, you, you ease up. And part of practice is finding appropriate ways to express these things. So for some people, maybe it's good to go give them a hug. Or in some situations, and other times, there's no need. They might be embarrassed or something. I talked about like owning, mm -hmm. like uh, where, where we get into situations where we're managing or controlling our partner or somebody, partly for our happiness. Of course, we frame it in terms of how much we love them and it's for their benefit. But often, we, we want them to be a way that makes us happy so that's that's a piece of it but it's got so many layers the security 
we seek, which can be partly financial, um, a cushion from our anxieties, emotional security, here's somebody who cares about me. So yeah, it's so much gets put into, especially um, it may not have been that way in earlier times where relationship, I, I think our culture, our modern world puts so much into relationship, which is maybe historically relatively new. But yeah, now it's pretty intense. But kind of fun. <laughs> okay. I mean, we could go on with this for a long, long time, but... But um, just from my, uh, you know, as a monk, you just don't, you're not supposed to get into relationship the way one is allowed to when you're uh, not a monk. So, so for me, the permission to really explore relationships a new thing, and also it's the complexity because seems when we relate to somebody we're relating to so many things like our partner but there's pieces of our parents and idealized school teachers or who knows what or because I had such a strong relationship with my teacher that gets kind of dragged into it sometimes in a healthy way the teachings but other ways maybe complicating or confusing so so it's easier to use the more thing examples um, to throw out another complex realm of politics and um, just recently having seen something that uh, made me go back through the events of 9-11 uh, not personally, but um, just reflecting on that. And um, when I think now of the directions that some people have gone and other people have gone, whether it's on the right or the left, this uh, progression that you talk about of happiness to becoming to a point of this rebirth of an ego and this attachment and um, I'm just wondering how that can work on a, on a political level for us as individuals, not necessarily as a movement or anything, but um, if you could talk a little bit about that within that realm. It seems to me that could be a, a pretty healthy way for some people to deal with this type of environment that we're in. By creating ego or? No, the opposite. Okay. No. <laughs> Oh yeah, oh, that, we've got way too much ego formation already. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Briefly, I mean, it's it is complex, but if I think it might be instructive, and I've I've done this with uh, friends where we try to use this teaching to understand some uh, social situations. 
so we could kind of look at um, how different sets of behaviors, maybe not so much think in terms of individuals or parties, but how, like, since in reaction to 9-11, what kind of sets of behaviors have happened and the ones that have got really hunkered down into a defensive personality and an aggressive um, identity and posture. And I think it's, it's obvious that some of those have really heightened fear and anger, which some of our leaders seem to believe is good. And um, I think from a Buddhist angle, that's highly questionable. And then, then how do we as people with a committed spiritual practice participate in these, these sort of constellations of behavior that are really egoistically charged where identities are have become polarized, and uh, you know, there's a real some like certain a lot of our politics. You know, there's identity politics, and there's um, people fighting for nationalism, which is another identity thing. How how can some of this be? diffused. To me, that would be, um, those of us who would aspire to, to Dhamma having some role in society, that's, that's where it would work. Um, and on a smaller level, if we participate in various movements, how, how do we help relax uh, the defensiveness, the clinging to identities, and especially when it gets polarized into us, us versus them. Where I live, the controversy around wind turbines has become very bitter between pro, pro and anti. And in our county seat, there's a big, there's another one around an ethanol plant, and both are kind of half and half. And so polarized and it's it's sad and I'm, I'm kind of trying to think as a newcomer is there a way to to encourage some of the local leaders in our wind turbine thing I know some of the leaders now could we look at mediation could we look at um, there are some well well tested processes to talk about you know, why we're angry, why we're upset, but not judging each other and start to create common ground, which in the, this local political issue, um, commonality of people who live together. I've heard stories of people, you know, they're 70 and they, they were going to the same one-room school and now be, they're split on this this issue and they're not talking you know 50 60 years neighbors and now they're not talking so and kind of want to try to meet some of the local clergy and see 
if there's willingness to to find a way to try to heal the wounds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.